0: We went through such a hard road leading up to the final, you know, playing some of the best teams. Insane, the road that we went through. But it was just such a sweet feeling at the end, knowing that we went through all of that to get to the final and and win. It was insane.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I'm your host, Ozan Farol. Today's guest on the show is soccer player Lindsay Horan. Lindsay plays for the Portland Thorns as well as the US Women's National Team. In 2012, an 18-year-old Lindsay defied conventional wisdom when she turned down a scholarship from Soccer Powerhouse university of north carolina unc is almost a guaranteed path to the big leagues for talented and hard-working women but lindsay decided to skip a step and move halfway around the world to sign with paris centered men she was the first american woman to go pro directly out of high school Today, Lindsay is a National Women's Soccer League player with the Thorns here in Portland. She led her team to the championship in 2017 and was named the most valuable player of the entire league for the 2018 season. She is also the heartbeat of the U.S. Women's National Team and played in her first World Cup and won the championship this past summer in 2019. You can follow Lindsay on Twitter, which is at LindseyHoran, and on Instagram, which is at LindseyHoran10. In the episode, Lindsay and I cover so much territory. We talk about how she made the difficult decision to skip college and turn pro in France, what it was like for her to land in France at the age of 18 with no language or cultural compass, How she overcame humiliation in the locker room to become the best player that she could be. Why chipped fingernails and short hair got players sidelined in France how she talks to herself through tough times and failures, how she supports her team on the field when things go sideways during a game, how she bounced back from being benched for most of the 2016 Olympics, and why taking risks on the field boosts her self-confidence and makes her a better player, and so much more. Before I play the interview, if you'd like to keep in touch with me, your host, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter, Called The Weekly Contrarian, it goes out to nearly 14,000 subscribers, and it shares with you an article that I wrote that week, along with recommendations for books, tools, other articles, quotes, really anything that challenges conventional wisdom, and hopefully helps you look at the world a little differently. You can sign up for that by heading over to weeklycontrarian.com. And if you sign up, you'll also get my free ebook, um, which is called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles for Innovating Your Thinking. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lindsay Horan as much as I did. And thank you, as always, for listening. Lindsay, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much.
1: So let's go back to high school. If you had walked up to a typical soccer coach at the time and told them that it was your dream to play in the World Cup on the women's team and asked them for career advice about the path you should take after high school, what do you think they would have told you?
0: Um, I think 100% of the coaches would probably tell me, oh, let me rephrase that. 99% of the coaches <laughs> would tell me to go to college, to play at a university and keep developing. And that's kind of the American route.
1: That was a path that every other women's player had followed before you. And at the time you had a scholarship offer at the University of North Carolina, which is a, for people who are listening who don't know, it's a legendary soccer program that launched the careers of players like Mia Hamm. So you had a scholarship offer to go there and that was the expected path. And yet, you defied conventional wisdom, (laughs) decided not to take that scholarship offer and go to Europe to play for Paris Saint-Germain. So tell us about your decision-making process.
0: It was one of the most difficult decisions I've ever made. I got offered a contract prior to go to Lyon, Olympic Lyonnais. And that was when I was a junior in high school, so I hadn't finished. So I had maybe two weeks to decide if I was going to take that offer. And I ultimately said no, just because I wasn't ready and I needed a year to at least finish high school and and then make my decision. So that whole senior year was a decision making process. And I was very thankful that I had it because I'm one of those kind of people that takes a lot of advice and likes to hear people's opinions, whether I like them or not. And I ultimately really helped me. So I was able to get advice from people that I didn't necessarily care about. And that's me saying that in the nicest way. But, you know, when certain people would tell me that I was dumb to think that I should go play pro and, you know, lose this college experience and and a scholarship and that you can't you know, sacrifice all of that. um, I think it ultimately led me to what I actually wanted to do. And so these people saying that and and whatnot, and not really just supporting me and what I wanted to do, I think that led me to my decision. And so I I do thank all those people that were against my, (laughs) what I wanted to do and my ultimate goal. But yeah, it was really hard. I struggled a lot. I think my family struggled a lot through it because I think it's a very difficult thing for a parent to see their kid going through this. And ultimately going through something that's not normal because everyone goes to college and that was what the path was. So I think it was hard for them, but they supported me through the whole journey and thank goodness I had my parents and I'm so thankful that they let me make that decision because I don't think a lot of parents would, you know, for them to let me do that at 17, 18 was incredible.
1: And just so we can underscore and maybe explain the stakes involved to to the people who are listening, if you went to Europe and for some reason things did not work out, would you have been able to come back to the U.S. to play at the college level? No. Was there a pro league at the time <laughs> in the U.S.? Um, no, actually, at the time I don't think there was. So that just explains how hard the decision was, too. Aside from your parents were very influential in in making the decision and you also mentioned the the people who were criticizing your decision or maybe what you were thinking about who seemed to have added sort of fuel to your fire to your desire what other factors influenced your decision to go to europe and forge your own path as opposed to to follow the the expected path and and the reason i'm i'm saying is because i think people like you are so rare, especially at that age, like we tend to learn everything by emulating other people, right? Like we learn how to talk, how to walk, how to tie our shoelaces, everything we do by copying what other people are doing. And when you're a high school junior or senior, it's only natural for you to look to the role models before you and sort of follow the, the path that, that they forge. So what other factors influence your decision to not do that?
0: So many, but I think me growing up, you know, when I was around 12, 13, I went to Colorado Rush. That was my youth club. And the coach that I had at the time, Tim Schultz, told my team, you know, one of the biggest ways of learning and and growing as a player is watching the game and watching these incredible teams and and showed us some of the best teams at the time. And and one of them was Barcelona, who I grew to (laughs) become obsessed with. Um, But that was ultimately like, I think why I know the game like I know it now and why I wanted to go overseas I think that was huge for me as I see you know this team that's so incredible and so talented and you know players on it like Messi and, and he was so young at the time and what he did I think that kind of helped me gain interest in you know going over to Europe it wasn't just turning pro it was like I want to go play in a culture like that and you know see a, a young player like Lionel Messi at 17 making his debut at Barcelona and I was like I want to do that and so this was, that was a dream of mine is playing overseas where football was so big. And so I think that was a huge factor for me is he was put in an uncomfortable position leaving Argentina and going into Barcelona's academy and and, and coming up with the first team. And I wanted to put myself in an uncomfortable position. As, and that's where I think we grow the most and we, you know, figure out who we are in those times as well. So I think that was huge for me, just coming out of my shell and saying that that's what I wanted to do and and to challenge myself. And ultimately, it was the best thing for me.
1: And you mentioned being put in an uncomfortable situation or position. So tell us about the transition to playing in in Europe. You were just 18 years old. You go over to to France. Do you speak the language?
0: (laughs) No, I (laughs) I do now, thankfully. But no, I didn't speak the language. I didn't really know the culture. I honestly had no idea what it was going to be like at the very beginning it honestly wasn't like the football part wasn't hard i was i was playing and i was enjoying it but it was a lot of the outside factors and you know that comes with the language the culture just day to day life my mom had you know helped me go over there and and move all my stuff and you know they had put me in this house this basically a mansion which was so nice i was so comfortable i I was enjoying it. And so I was there for 10 days. My mom is about to leave and I get a call in the morning saying I have to move to a place downtown <laughs> in saint and Ley. So I was like all like set up and everything. And then I had to leave and go to an apartment. And I got to the apartment. There was no sheets on the bed. The first night I was sleeping on towels. Like it was just crazy, you know, just a huge adjustment. And And then, you know, I was... I just had to grow up really quickly, you know, on the field, off the field and, and mature and, you know, take care of my body and all these things that I learned over there, which just would be easier to learn over here. Dealing with, you know, a different culture and, and those kind of challenges is, is
1: very difficult. So I grew up in Istanbul, Turkey. And came to the U.S. when I was 17, leaving my family behind. But at least I spoke the language and it was in like a college environment where like everything is sort of like ready made for you. And here are your friends. Here's your dorm room. And so I can't imagine having to deal with what what you went through at at such a young age. You didn't speak French at the time. How did you communicate with the like the other players and the coaching staff? Did they speak English?
0: Coaching staff, most of them did. My head coach, it was kind of broken English. He claims that he's he speaks English, but um, no, he, he's decent. But most of the staff, like uh, manager and whatnot, would speak English. And a lot of the players did, but it was, it was so funny. It would, it would take them a lot to come out and tell me that they spoke English because oh. I think that's how French people operate is they really like when people try and sure. they appreciate it. So they weren't necessarily so open to me, like speaking English to me. Until I tried speaking French. So like one of my closest friends now um, that's from France, she for maybe two months did not speak to me. And finally, when we started driving together, she was my ride every day for training. I asked her a question and she spoke a whole sentence in in English. And I was like, (laughs) and it was like good English. I was yeah. like, are you fluent? Like, and it sounded like an American accent. I was like, what in the world? And she was just like, oh yeah, I speak English. And I was like, I've been here for how long and you haven't spoken to me. <laughs> so like, that's, that's kind of how it was. So, so funny.
1: <laughs> uh, that's funny. She was like, I'm trying to just help you immerse into yeah. the culture so you can learn the language. <laughs> Typical French. <laughs> <laughs> At one of the meetings, one of the coaches told the team that you wouldn't start again until you lost weight. Can you Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, I've more recently been open about talking about it. It was a really hard time and in my time at in in Paris obviously, you know, I went from being here in America where I was training, you know, three to four times a day at my youth club and, and kind of eating how I wanted, doing whatever I wanted, you know, I was young and, and whatnot. And then you go into a professional environment and you have to take care of your body and you're training once a day. And, and all of these trainings are getting ready for games. So, and going, you know, to a whole new culture of, you know, you don't really know what you're putting in your body and, you know, et cetera. And so I think, I was 18 and and I didn't really know what was best for me. And so the coach basically had told me that I needed to lose weight. And the way that they said it was really hard for me to hear. And I think, you know, maybe certain things get lost in translation as well because it sounds more brutal. Mm-hmm. But it would be to a point where, you know, you would, you would get fined for having chocolate or on the bus or, you know, after the game they had desserts out and things out and they wouldn't let us eat certain things and it was just kind of like always out there and just like in my mind and in my head and and whatnot and I think it came to a point where I felt like I was I was the most fit that I had been I think I said this before um, I had beaten everyone in the fitness test I was top two people and there was four of us that had to lose a certain amount of weight, you know, coming back from the summer. And so after the fitness test, we go in and we meet as a team and, and our coach says, okay, Lindsay, you're, you're not going to be playing or starting until you lose more weight or your body fat percentage is down. It was just incredible to me because I felt like, you know, I was playing, you know, some of the best football of my life at the time and I was fit and I, I felt like I could run more than three-fourths of the team. And it was just like now it's all about image and, and you need it to be, you know, (laughs) I I have no idea. So it was just the most like, (sighs) incruciating pain. And I just, I didn't really know, you know, why I was there anymore. And it almost felt like I was playing for the wrong reason. And I didn't want to be in France anymore. I remember Tobin Heath was there at the time and I was crying to her and I went home and I, you know, I was crying to my my mom and I said I wanted to quit. I wanted to leave. And I think I called my agent at the time and I was like, this isn't for me anymore. This isn't about football anymore. And just like painful. And I mean, just incredible that someone would say that in front of the team as well. And I sit back now and I I look at it and I'm just like, you know, they were trying to help me. I know they're trying to help me, but the way they went about it was so wrong it took a lot out of me at the time. So really hard process. And I think after a few days, I really sat back and I was just like, you know what, I'm going to absolutely (laughs) prove that coach wrong. And I did everything in my power to keep playing my best football and doing it because I loved it, not for anyone else. And because I kept reminding myself that and, you know, telling myself that it was, you know, it it all kind of came into play. So, I got back out there and I ended up starting the next week (laughs) and, you know, I I lost a certain amount of weight and they were, of course, happy about that, but it wasn't for them, you know, it was for me and I wanted to make myself better. I wanted to be a better player and that's what it was ultimately about, not because they were threatening me with this.
1: I mean, there's so many, I think, double standards in in soccer between men and women, but in case people are wondering, what do you think is driving that obsession with with public image? Because it wasn't just the commenting on your weight, right? I think in the same interview, you mentioned how the coaches would also comment on, oh, like your nail is chipped or that your hair isn't long enough. I mean, no one is telling Messi that he should grow his hair out. And so what do you think is driving that?
0: It's crazy to me because I sit back and I think about it all the time. I'm just like, it's, I can't believe someone would you know, say that and, uh, and say it in that way, because it, it would be so different if you came to someone and was just like, you know, if you change this, this, and this in your diet, you know, may, you might be faster, you might get stronger. Maybe we can go into the gym more and focus on these points. Like there's just certain ways that you can go about it that can help a player. And I know it's a very hard subject, but over there at the time, like it was crazy to me because it did happen where the goalkeeper, the first goalkeeper I was there with wasn't getting called into the national team because her hair was short as you said, I would get comments on my nails all the time. If they were chipped, they weren't pretty enough. And that was coming from my coach, one of my coaches. And I was just like, this is so inappropriate and kind of demeaning in a way. And that's not how I'm here for football. I'm not here to look pretty for you guys. And I can be myself and, and show myself. And I think over time, the players that came in, the new players we got, the internationals were so awesome because, you know, they had this leadership and experience and they came in and did whatever the heck they wanted, you know, and, and showed, you know, their true being and and who they were. And and they didn't let any coach, you know, make them feel otherwise. And I think that's something I've learned so much from Tobin as well, because she was there and and she was Tobin the whole time and, and shouldn't change for anyone. So I don't know what it was about the culture there, or if it were just those coaches or, or what, but crazy,
1: crazy to me. You did eventually, you know, acclimate to the culture there. You, in your first year, scored 17 goals and 20 appearances, which is amazing. Were there any, like, strategies as you were having these second thoughts about whether or not you were in the right place? Were there any strategies? I mean, it sounds like the other players, like you mentioned, Tobin, were helpful. Were there any strategies that you employed that helped you, like any sort of self-talk or really anything that, that comes to mind? And I'm asking that question because if somebody else finds themselves in a In a similar situation, like what advice would you give them?
0: I think I kind of said it a little bit earlier, but once that all happened, I kind of had to sit back and and remember why I was there and why I made the jump to France and all the stuff that was happening to me, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is it. This is, you know, this position that I've, you know, put myself in that I'm going to grow from and I'm going to learn from, and somehow it's going to make me better, whether it's growing my mind and getting stronger or, you know, making myself better on the field or, or whatnot, I'm going to grow from it. And I'm going to, I'm going to learn from it, whatever it, it is whatever takeaway there is. And I think there are so many people that helped me through that as well, but no matter what, it came down to doing it for me and what was best for me. And, and then remembering why I was playing the game and why I made that jump. And that's because I fell in love with the sport at such a young age. The sport brings me so much happiness and like, it is, you know, you fell in love with it. You fell in love with the ball and that that's the best thing in the world. And so I think in any job or or whatever you do in life, the, thing that you love is like you have to constantly remember that's why you're doing it and i think all of those nagging things or difficult things that you were going through they kind of just get like flushed away if you just constantly remind yourself like i i love this and i enjoy this every single day and there's going to be difficult times but i'm going to keep loving it because then the hard work follows and i'm going to be happy again and when that happened i kind of like i couldn't even hear the coaches on the field i was just playing because i loved it i love my teammates and i i love getting better and working hard. And so I think that's what I I reminded myself. And I try to tell young athletes that or just young kids that doing whatever they want in life, whatever you love doing, just keep constantly loving it because you don't want to lose that drive or passion that you have. And that could happen if you stop loving it.
1: I'm going to do a little bit of fanboying here, (laughs) but um, (laughs) watching you play, it's so apparent that you do, you do love the game and it's, why so much fun to watch you. And you also defy classic soccer terms like setter midfielder or even like box-to-box midfielder because, you know, you're back in defense disrupting an attack, you dribble the ball upfield, you take risks, you uh, set new plays, you smash a header in the net, you do all of these things that defy, I think, stereotypes. How did you develop that style of play?
0: As I said before, Tim Schultz, the coach I had when I went to Colorado Rush, he kind of developed me into just a a footballer for the best term I can use. Not, you know, not a center mid, not a center back, not a forward, not, you know, none of those. You're just a a footballer. And that that means you need a skill set for all these things, because at the time I wasn't on a national team, I wasn't high up in the ranks. And he's like, you know, whatever they want from you, whatever whatever position they want to try you in, like you need to be ready for it. So there are times I'm playing center back or as a nine or a 7-11. I think at PSG, I was playing all up top. They brought me back to a 10 at certain times. And then here in Portland, I'm playing an eight. So it's kind of like... He developed every single skill set with me. I worked so hard on on everything. I wanted to be a goal scorer, but I wanted to be good in the back. And I think I, <laughs> defensively, I hadn't grown until, you know, recently these past few years. That's where I've gotten better and better and, and still need some growing to do. But, you know, it's all just been like, I've wanted to focus on every little thing. And that's what makes a footballer a footballer. And I think in a sense, I'm going to keep bringing up Messi, but you could probably put him on the field anywhere and he will do fine. I might not play him at center back because that's not his strength, but I think he could play it because he's messy. And I think that's what makes a special player special.
1: And that's such an important message. I think one that applies far outside of soccer to specialization is all the rage these days. Like, you know, expertise is super valued. Then experts are valuable, of yeah, course. For sure. But at the same time, there's something to be said about being versatile and being a generalist too. I'm a little biased here because I have all of these multiple identities (laughs) in my own life too. (laughs) Right. But I think that's, that's a really important message to highlight too, is that being able to play in all of these different messages just makes you a really well-rounded player. Well, thank you. You're a leader on the field. When things go sideways, how do you think about supporting the team?
0: The most important thing is, is how I'm playing. And the next thing I do on the ball you know, one of my, my biggest role models here in Portland is is Sinclair. I think she is the greatest leader, but not not with her voice. I think she has a voice and, and sometimes she uses it. But I think she leads by example and, and in her play and what she does on a daily basis. So, you know, things going sideways on the field like I turn to sink and I see her making a 60 yard sprint to get in the box to win a header, to, to score a goal or making, you know, a 60 yard run back to go help on defense. And I think that drives me. And I've tried to kind of take that upon myself and say, you know, I want to be that leader because I'm not, I'm not much of a a voice out on the field or in the locker room. I'm more, you know, a leader by example. And I try to be, I think I try to like pump up the girls and, and get us back out there, or get another goal or whatever we need at the time. But I think it more just comes in my play.
1: In a previous interview, you said that during the 2016 Olympics, you hit a new low in your career. How yeah. so?
0: So I wasn't heavily involved. Um, I think I played one full game against Colombia. And I had lost my starting spot probably two months prior to the Olympics. That was really hard for me because I had, you know, been starting for probably six, seven months since I had come back from Paris, and something happened. I mentally wasn't, you know, fully there. And I think at the time, you know, Jill wasn't completely confident that I could start and play in a, a huge tournament like that. And
1: and, and Jill being the, the head coach, for the, the head women's coach, team. yes, sorry.
0: Mm-hmm. So that was really difficult for me. Is more so just because i wanted to help my team win and perform and that's what we all want to do we want to help impact the game and and do whatever we can to get us a gold medal at the end of the the tournament and so me sitting on the bench and especially in that in the game that we lost you know to send us home it was it was so hard because i was just like i wish i was out there to even try and help my team win and i i I didn't have the ability to do that. And, and, you know, those are coaching decisions that you have to, you have to kind of deal with. And, and so from that moment on, I was like, I'm not letting that happen ever again. <laughs> like that, that was, it was just so difficult and, and hard for me. Cause I, I just wanted so badly for us to win and, and for me to be out there and just a really hard feeling. So I think moving forward from there, it kind of, you know, it's one of those things that drives you to get better and better and not let it happen again.
1: Yeah, and you did get better <laughs> from that. And the reason I say that is so. So that was the 2016 Olympics. In 2017, the Portland Thorns won the, the championship, and and you led the team to victory in that last game, scoring the the winning goal. In 2018, just a year later, you were selected the MVP for the uh, for the entire league. And again, I'm gonna go back to my strategy question, but since we're trying to share actionable strategies with the audience. What was going on through your head? So as you navigated that transition from what you described as a, new, as, as a new low in the 2016 Olympics to a meteoric rise from there in 2017 and then 2018, what do you think drove that?
0: A lot of help from my coach here in Portland. I give him so much credit. Mark was huge for me. I think kind of what you were saying before, talking about me as a player, I think Mark has always seen that in me since I've been in Portland and I think he he does see me as a a special player and he wants to use whatever I can give for the team and he told me that we had many conversations you know kind of trying to get me out of that that rut and which was huge for me I think you need a support system and he was a part of it and I think ultimately it's it's the person that you know can change things and I think you know at the time I was just like you know I can be this player and this is the player I want to be and I have to start small and and change certain things and I think one of the biggest parts of that I changed was you know mentally I I needed my confidence again and getting confidence is training hard every single day changing the way I wanted to train or you know, what I was training for. Like it was, it was not just to train. I, not that I got to that point, but it was, you know, these are the goals that I have in mind. So just certain things that I set in my head. And I think in my off season before that next season, I worked harder than I ever have before. And, you know, I came in so fit and, and just confident and in my happy place, you know, I was at home in Denver training, you know, with my old coaches and my own teammates and, um, our alumni training for rush, you know, I was in my happy place again. So I think that, you know, drove me into the season where I was confident and I was feeling good. And that's when you're playing at your best. And so I think that's what kind of drove me into those next few seasons.
1: And what was your training like during that? You said it was a pretty hard training schedule in the Mm -hmm. off season. What did it look like?
0: I knew I had to focus so much on, on strength and lifting and conditioning, and I wanted to be the fittest player on the field so that I could, you know, do all these things that I'm good at. And I think especially in our NWSL, it's it's such a tough league and a physical league and physically demanding league. So I think I focused so much on that and then added all of my regular trainings, which would be, you know, technical finishing whatnot with you know my coach back at home Eric Boucher and and two of my best guy friends that play in the USL and and MLS so training with them just (laughs) makes me better in general and they you know give me crap all the time so it's it's nice it go back to two to three sessions a day and and that's what I enjoy the most you know I was I'm I was so tired every single day and that that felt so good to me
1: And going back to coach Parsons for a second, you mentioned how influential he was in a previous interview. One of the things that you highlighted was that he would tell you, keep making the mistakes, keep trying things, keep taking those risks. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? Because it's not often that a coach encourages a player to to make mistakes on the field. Um, So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that approach.
0: You know, it's so funny you asked that because he even did that to me recently. There's maybe two or three games ago. My like switches, like my my long balls across the field were just off. And, you know, it was just one of those games that few little technical changes would have been great, but just certain mistakes I had made. And he came up to me, I think, either during a sub or someone was down and he was just like, keep doing it. Keep taking those risks. You have to, like, we need that from you. And it doesn't matter. Like these things happen, you know, whatever. And he's done that to me so many times. And I think he knows that, you know, I can hit those passes or I can do those things. Like he knows that in the back of his head. So me doing it, like he doesn't want to put me down as a player. He knows I can, I can make those. So, you know, telling me to keep making those mistakes, keep trying, keep, It's one of those confidence boosters again. Like he has a trust in me that I can I can do that, and it it just feels good. And I think any player would say that. So I think him telling me that, telling me in training every single day, it helps so much because I know one I can't just continuously make those mistakes. But my coach has a belief in me that I I can hit those passes, I can finish those shots, whatever. But that belief, you know, drives me and and you know makes me feel good as a player and makes me makes me want to do more for the team. And I think Mark does such a great job with me in that.
1: There's such a refreshing approach to to, to leadership yeah. and one you don't really find. I mean, I, I do a lot of like speaking in, in front of corporate audiences and, and the leaders, they might pay lip service to sort of like rewarding intelligent mistakes and then failing well and all of that. But when push comes to shove, failures are punished and successes are rewarded. And of course that sends the message that then you can't take these healthy risks like the ones you take on the field, because if they result in failure, you get shown the door. And so that's so nice to hear that, you know, there's a soccer coach who does the opposite and who, who rewards the, the type of intelligent risks that are going to have huge payoffs down the line. So in a serendipitous turn of events this summer, you went back to France <laughs> <laughs> to play in what was your first World Cup. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that, because I got to experience some of it from the, from the stands As we were chatting before we started recording here, my wife and I were in Lyon and watched the semifinal game and the final game. I'm sure you had some expectations about what the World Cup would be like going into it, but what surprised you about (laughs) playing there?
0: I think the first game that I played in against Thailand, when I stepped on the field, it was just such a surreal feeling and emotional feeling, and especially when the national anthem came on, I... I cried. I got very emotional. My parents were in the stands and it was just kind of like I sat there and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is what I've wanted my whole life (laughs) was to be at this point. Like it makes me emotional right now, even talking about it because I can picture myself in that moment. It was just, I have such a vivid memory of me standing, you know, with my hand over my heart and and singing so loudly. And we had so many fans there, like it felt like a US home game. Like it was, it was incredible. (laughs) Um, So I never thought like I would get that feeling and I just didn't know what it was like, and it was just like I couldn't stop smiling. I was, it was incredible, and and we had such a huge win, and um, just scored a goal. Yeah, and I (laughs) scored my first goal. I think the best part of that game was seeing my family's reaction after the game. Someone caught it on Twitter, and you know, posted it. My friend Jordan Angeli actually uh, got the video of it, and it was the cutest reaction. Ever. (laughs) And I think they have, you know, more following than me now because everyone, (laughs) everyone loved them. So they're famous. Um, But no, that was probably my favorite part is, you know, having my family there supporting me. And, you know, they're the ones that have been through everything with me. and, And they're the reason I'm here today. So... That was insane but you know through the tournament you know you take each game by by a time and it's incredible it's it's exhausting but it's mentally exhausting and it's tough at times you know we went through such a hard road leading up to the final you know playing some of the best teams in, in the world and you know in a round of 16 game a quarter final a semifinal, and like Spain France England like insane the road that we went through but it was just such a sweet feeling at the end, you know, knowing that we went through all of that to, you
1: know, get to the final and and win, it was insane. It was so much fun to see it from the, from the stands. And Lyon itself had like, it almost felt like it had turned into an American city. Yeah. It's (laughs) It's like 30,000 Americans. Yeah. It was incredible. Well, we're coming to the end of our, end of our time here, but I'd like to ask you one, one final question what changes would you like to see in women's soccer for the for the next generation of players
0: it's such a tough question right now because you know we're in the middle of doing so much for women um not just women in soccer but you know for me i think there's a lot of changes that need to need to happen with our national team and with our league i think the biggest change i want to see is is our league grow and with that being said i think the youth youth clubs can grow with it and I would love to see, you know, youth clubs getting integrated with these NWSL clubs so that it's more of a feeder system with, you know, kind of like the MLS and and what they do and and giving these opportunities to players who, you know, grow and learn from all these professionals as well and and there's there's just so many things that we can do for them so that we're giving them the same opportunities and the same way of learning as, as the men do. And, and I think we're trying so hard as a national team to be, you know, the standard for that and, and what we deserve. And I don't know, it's, it's difficult and it's going to be, it's going to be a while, and I think we're going through so much right now that we're trying to help, so we're hoping that we can pave the way and you know, grow it as, as quickly as possible. And Portland
1: is a great city to yeah. be in. Right? <laughs> this <laughs> is the best example <laughs> here in Portland. I think the uh, attendance at the last game I was at, It was a record against North Carolina Courage, right? 25,000, which is incredible. Insane. Um, Well, Lindsay, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us. If people want to follow you on social media, online, where can they go?
0: My Twitter is lindsayhoran10 or lindsayhoran. And then my Instagram is lindsayhoran10. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, Please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on, and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N three four five three four five so once again that's my first name ozan ozan to three four five three four five or if you're in front of your computer you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address if you act now you'll also get a free ebook called the contrarian handbook eight principles to innovate your thinking as always thank you for listening and see you next time